Good morning, International Church of Prague. Next Sunday, May 23rd, we get to be together again for corporate worship. We're so excited about that. We'll practice all of the safety protocols as far as wearing masks, maintaining social distancing between families, and of course, washing our hands. And so if you're comfortable, we would love for you to join us in person, or if not, please feel free to continue to join us online. But we get to worship together as the International Church of Prague in person. And then on May 30th, we're going to celebrate baptism, membership, and Lord's Supper together. So if you're interested in baptism, if you have questions about that, let me encourage you to send an email and we'll do our best to come alongside of you and, and give you an opportunity to take this step of obedience, to express your allegiance, your faith in Jesus Christ in a beautiful and public way. Also, if you have questions about membership or are ready to join, we would love to have you be a part of the International Church of Prague. So exciting days are ahead, and we're so thankful that we get to be together again. Today we're continuing our Pathways to Knowing God and Making Him Known series. And today's the path of understanding. And when you think about it, there are many influences that affect our thinking every single day. And we need to understand that knowledge and understanding itself are not the same thing. They can be different. We can have a great deal of knowledge, but not necessarily have understanding that leads to truly a relationship with the Lord and to obedience to Him. Prague is blessed in having some of the most beautiful libraries in all the world. It's also blessed by having a great deposit of books. Maybe you've been into the Prague Library where there are the tower of books that are together, where there's 8,000 books that are put together in this incredible tower that looks like it goes on and on infinitely. It's pretty amazing. And it's a great reminder that there's a lot of information that truly is calling for our attention, for each one of us. Each one of those books represents sets of ideas that people are trying to express. And so there's a lot of information. We add to that the information that we have in the media, on the internet, and there's messages all around us. So how do we discern? How do we truly understand what is true? Well, we've looked a little bit already at the truth test, where we need to see how the things that we believe align with the person of Jesus Christ, the person of truth. Today, we want to examine His Word and, and discover how we can learn to take God's Word and apply it to our lives, how we can know the things that we believe are accurate. And so what I want to do is encourage you. Uh, there's going to be some practical tools that we have today, but I want to encourage you to, to take some steps of intentionality in growing in your understanding of God's Word and how you approach it. Because remember, knowledge and understanding are not the same thing. Think about what Jesus told the Jewish leaders. They had incredible knowledge of the scriptures. They had large portions of the Bible memorized, and yet they did not understand who Jesus was or what God had sent him to do. Jesus says this in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So great knowledge doesn't necessarily mean that we have understanding about who Jesus is and what he has done and how to follow him. 
In the case of these religious leaders, the disconnect between knowledge and understanding prevented them from knowing truth and experiencing the life that Jesus offers. Look what Jesus says about the Bible, about the Word itself. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All scripture ultimately points to Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of the word and of our faith. He came to fulfill the Torah and the prophets. God's word reveals who he is and how we are to relate to him. But to move from knowledge to understanding, we need to apply the truth test, to think what he thinks and to examine how our ideas, our understandings, our belief line up with the fullness of God's word. And the key is where we focus our minds. You see, Jesus has a lot to say about where we set our minds and how our thoughts impact everything that we do. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 6. This is what the scripture tells us. To set the mind on the flesh, that is, on ourself, is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law or to his word. Indeed, it cannot. Our mindset impacts our understanding of God's word. If we approach his word with a mindset that's focused on ourselves, we will never move from knowledge about the Bible to an understanding of the God of the Bible. That was the promise, the problem of the Pharisees. They knew, had a great deal of knowledge, but they lacked understanding. They were deceived because they were unaware that their own minds were so focused on themselves. Here in this scripture in Romans 8, we see that there's two minds, the natural mind and the spiritual mind. So which one of those is controlling the direction of your thoughts today? Now, this doesn't, isn't a question about whether or not you're a believer or whether or not you agree with the Bible. It's a question of whether or not you're allowing God to speak to you or whether or not we're placing our ideas, our wants, onto the word of God and trying to interpret it in that way. God calls us to set our minds on the Spirit. In other words, we must choose what we focus our minds on, and that will determine how we interpret the information around us, both in the world as well as in the Word. The natural mind does not see an accurate picture of reality because it tends to exclude God. Now, let me give you an experiment. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen, and I want to ask you this simple question. 
Which of the two gray squares that you see on your screen is darker? Which one is lighter? Right now, your mind is telling you that the top square is darker than the bottom square. Everything within your frame of reference is convinced that this is truth. And even if I tell you that they're the exact same shade, your mind still sees them as different. I want you to think about that. Let me prove it to you just so you know that I'm telling the truth. So here's the picture that we have. And if I fold it together like this, then you can see that they really are the exact same shade. But without that, with the way that it's shaded, our minds are convinced that they're different. If our minds can be so easily deceived over something insignificant, like a picture and the whether or not one shade of gray is darker than another, how much more aware must we be of the way human reasoning and way the culture and the influence of the enemy can impact our thinking. The natural mind tends to filter out the voice of the Spirit and the power of God's Word. The spiritual mind, however, filters out the voice of self, the voice of the culture, and the influence of Satan. Understand that for those who by faith trust Jesus Christ as Savior and follow Him as Lord, the greatest battle you and I will face will be a battle for the control and influence of our minds. And understand this, the number one tactic of the enemy is deception. And oftentimes he will use things that sound true or or maybe are almost true to deceive us. Sun Tzu in The Art of War said, all warfare is based on deception. That's a true statement. And we need to recognize the enemy seeks to to deceive you and I. Let me show it to you in the scripture because our tendency is that just like the way we saw that square is we don't think this happens to us. I want to show you what happened to the apostle Peter, how he heard from the spirit and was influenced by the enemy right after one another. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and let's see what Jesus did in dealing with Peter. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It's revealed to Peter who Jesus truly is by the Spirit of God, Peter gets an A plus in his response. He, he gives the perfect answer, the accurate and truthful answer. But look what happens just after that. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, Peter did not think he was being deceived. He did not go, hey, where did that idea come from? He didn't filter his thoughts at all. It seemed like just the right thing. In his mind, he now knew who Jesus was, and therefore nothing could stand in the way. And the idea of Jesus suffering was unthinkable to him. In his mind, it just made sense. But it was human reasoning corrupted by the influence of Satan and a mind set on the flesh rather than on the spirit. He is arguing with God and yet he thinks it's a good idea. And it happened right after his great confession of faith. If that can happen to Peter, it can happen to me and to you. Our reasoning may seem rational, but that doesn't mean that it's in tune with the spirit of God and with his word. We can easily be deceived. and We need to recognize that we are at war with the enemy who is seeking to distract each and every one of us. Here's an important point that will help us as we explore God's word. We need to understand that there's a difference between revelation and projection when we're reading God's word. Revelation is found through the, the scholarly word is called exegesis, which means to draw out. And it means that we allow the text to speak in context and in harmony with other scriptures to reveal meaning, understanding, and application. That's revelation. Projection, however, is the process of eisegesis. That's the scholarly word for it, which means to write in. Well, we imprint our worldview, our opinion, our wants onto a passage of scripture. Projection imports a person's subjective interpretations onto a passage of scripture, often disregarding the overall context and the balance of what is found in other passages of scripture. It's just like turning a projector on and shining it on our Bibles where we're projecting our thoughts, our wins, our ideas onto what God says rather than allowing his word to truly speak to us and reveal his heart, and his truth. In biblical exegesis, which is the opposite of eisegesis, we can be in error very easily. But when we practice exegesis, when we practice this idea of drawing out from the scripture, we have a much better chance of coming to a right understanding of what God is saying, rather than importing or imprinting or projecting our own thoughts and our own ideas onto the word of God. So one of the things that we've provided for you that I really wanna encourage you to use is the Pathways to Scripture Exploration Guide. And we have that on our website. In fact, I'll put it here on Facebook and on YouTube where you can, you can download it. But this little guide gives you a systematic way to get an overview of the scripture to examine God's word over the course of many weeks so you have a good big picture understanding of the message of the Bible. It also gives you some practical tools for how we are to look at God's word to make sure that we are um, seeking revelation rather 
than furthering projection, where we're projecting our own ideas onto the scripture. And so let me go through a couple of things that are in this guide that will tell you why I think it's such an important tool for for helping us be equipped to learning God's word. Well, the first thing that we need to do is we need to prepare our hearts when we come to the word of God. We need to pray for understanding. We can only understand scripture with the help of the Holy Spirit. If possible, try to read an entire section at one setting without interruption. Oftentimes what we do is we go looking for answers rather than listening. And I want to encourage you, as you come to the scripture, read the entire passage in one setting without interruption. And as you read, look for what's going on. Look for the identity of of the writer, the person that God's using to communicate this. Look for the reasons that this is written. Look for major themes and the general flow of thought. Then go back and reread the passage or a specific verse that stood out as you're able to meditate on it throughout the day. As you focus more and more on the specific passage, then think about how this passage you are studying may relate to major themes and purposes of the book in which it's contained overall. You see, we're seeing how it fits in its context. What we need to do then is, is to really understand is go back and read the passages before and the passage after the text that you're studying in order to identify the setting, understand the context. You may find it helpful even to, to print out the passage in a format that gives you some space around it where you can put notes or highlight or circle or questions. Or you can use a Bible app that allows highlighting and notes as well. They're, they're great tools. Or you can highlight and put notes in your Bible itself. We need to think about how the passage we're reading relates to other passages of Scripture on the subject. And here, here's a, a very important truth. When you seem to find passages that on the surface disagree with one another, most of the time what it is doing is providing us balance so that our understanding of God's intent and meaning are more clear. That's why it's important for us to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So that's the beginning part. That's the things we should look for. Then as we're actually reading it, we need to do some observation. What does the text say? Questions like this. Ask some questions as you, as you go along, simply like, who? Who wrote this? Who are the main characters? Who's acting? Who's speaking? Who's listening? Who's present? Maybe even who's absent? Then we ask some what questions. What is written? What are the events that happen? What exactly is said and what is the response? Then we need to look at it geographically. Where is this happening? What's the setting? Is it in Israel? Is it in Galilee? Is it in Egypt? Is it something local? Is it in a house? And is it on a mountainside? What's the setting of what's happening? And then when does this happen? What's the time of day? What is its relationship to other events or different parts of the story? What's happening here in the midst of this? It's so important for us to examine each of these things and at least have them running through the back of our mind as we're reading the scripture. Then the next thing we need to look at how. How does the text say something is accomplished? How does it fit in with larger biblical narratives? Some other things to look for are are patterns of words. Are certain words repeated over and over again? 
Are there comparisons? Especially when you're reading passages like from the Psalms, you'll often see words either in pairs where they're complementing one another or contrasting each other. Are there obvious figures of speech or connecting words like and or 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 likewise or also or therefore? All those are important for us to be able to really get a full understanding of what is being said. At this point, we're not even trying to apply it to our life or necessarily really figure out where this leads. We just want to clearly understand it. And that leads us to interpretation. What does it mean? Keep in mind the theme of the whole book, of the whole Bible itself, as well as the context within the the section that you're reading, the book itself. And then make sure that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. How does this relate to other passages? A great thing to use is, uh, is to use the search mechanism on a Bible app and look up key words to see other ways that they're used in the scripture. See what that brings out in helping us to have a fuller understanding of God's overall message. And again, as I mentioned, passages that seem to contradict often provide balance and understanding so that we don't over-apply one idea beyond God's intent. In the same way, we want to interpret obscure and difficult passages in the light of very clear statements. The most natural understanding, the, the face value, is usually best. Remember, oftentimes there are figures of speech, there are allegories, and there are other literary devices that are used in the Scripture. Furthermore, you don't have to understand everything about a passage to have enough application to begin to use it and live it in your life. And that leads us to the next part. There's some questions here in the guide about obedience. What am I to do in response? And here at ICP, we've encapsulated our response, what it means to follow Christ in these terms. First of all, loving God. Is there something here about the nature, character, or activity of God, of Jesus Christ, or of the Holy Spirit, or my relationship with Him, or the relationship of a group, or believers as a whole? Is there something there for us to learn about how to love Him, how to worship Him? Secondly, living truth. Is there an attitude or action to imitate? Is there one to avoid? Is there a command to obey? a challenge that we need to to participate in? What principles are behind the command? And how does that ultimately point to the person of Jesus Christ? How does it reveal or relate to his character? How do all these things fit together with the core truth of the gospel, of the good news that God provided a way for you and I to have a relationship with him by giving his son? Is there a principle to apply to my life in some way, to my thoughts, to my desires, to my decisions, my habits, my relationships, my possessions? Is there a promise that is given? How will I learn and choose to trust what God has said? And how do all these things relate to God's will and God's glory? That's living truth. You see, the focus when we take living truth is to turn our eyes off of ourselves and to look at God. So we begin with loving God, then living truth, and then finally we're going to apply it and live it out in a way that impacts the lives of others by giving grace. 
we need to ask questions like this of obedience. How can I pass on what I've learned to someone else? Who do I know that might need what I've learned today? Who might need to be encouraged? Who I might need to take this that I've just read from the scripture and live it out in such a way that I become Jesus' hands and feet in their life or I become a comfort or an encouragement to them. You see, all those things are involved in us learning to move from simply knowledge to understanding to living. We need to make sure that we're seeing God's revelation and not a projection of our own ideas, our own beliefs, or wants when we come to the scripture. Because all of us are in danger, just like Peter, of having some understanding. He had that great revelation of who Jesus truly was. And almost his next words were a rebuke that, God, you don't work in that way. He put God in a box that God does not belong in. Because God's understanding, God's ways, God's thoughts are higher than ours. So to move from knowledge to understanding, we must submit our thoughts and our reading of Scripture to the truth test. The short truth test I told you last week is does it place the focus on Jesus, on His will and glory, or on our effort and our wants? Now that's important. What I want to do is I want to take just a few moments and make that practical. I want to look at, at a teaching and an idea and examine it from the scripture by looking at a broad base of scriptures that deal with the, with the issue and see what that would lead us to believe. And what I want to do is, is do an examination of understanding sickness and healing from the scripture. Because very well-meaning people who sincerely want to see friends and loved ones healed sometimes make a claim that if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. They have been taught that you're already healed in Jesus. And, and yes, there's an aspect to that that's very true. We are healed spiritually by Jesus' sufferings. He, he's purchased us that we have eternal life now. But the physical effects of sin and sickness and the fall are not manifest in our bodies fully until the resurrection of Jesus. And so we need to see, we live in this gap between the already and the not yet. And sometimes that can be confusing to us to be able to figure out how it works. So what I want to do is just very, um, as openly as possible, is look at what the Bible says about the issue of healing and look at the full weight of the scriptures and see where it leads us. First of all, we need to recognize faith is incredibly important. Jesus clearly told the woman who touched his garment and had suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years in which the physicians could not heal him. He said this, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. There's definitely a connection between faith and healing in the life of a believer. That's important. Sometimes God heals in a supernatural way in response to faith. I've seen God do that. I've seen him miraculously heal people. But we need to understand that is not necessarily every case we see in the scripture. Many of the people that Jesus healed had very little faith, maybe didn't have any faith. I want you to think about the 10 lepers that Jesus healed. Only one of them, a Samaritan, came back to even say, thank you. The nine had little to no faith, and yet Jesus healed them anyway. 
because God is incredibly good. He is a God of love and a God of grace. He makes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. In other cases, we have individuals who are healed in the scripture where they cry out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. They had some faith, but their faith they recognized even was weak. So there must be more to this than just faith. So faith alone is not the only aspect, nor does God in any way discourage people from seeking medical treatment. God does heal through medicine as well. We need to understand he's the creator. He designed the wonderful discoveries that have been made in medicine and in science. They do point to him and to his glory. Now people can choose to give credit to him or not, but they are evidence of who he is. Now, sometimes those who believe that only faith will heal will tell a person that to seek medical treatment is a sign that you lack faith. But that belief, that idea, I want to show you is in direct conflict with God's word. This is why we need to see the full breadth of God's word when we examine a belief or an idea to make sure that we're not projecting our own thoughts or the thoughts of someone else onto what the scripture says, where we're trying to make God say something he does not say in his word. Understand this, all healing comes from God, every form of it. God is the giver and sustainer of life. And when we are healed, as we often are, it is his work and his glory. He helps through divine intervention at times. He heals the body, heals through the body's ability to recover as he created us, the way that There's a certain built-in nature into us where we're able to recover from things. He also heals through the skill of a physician and through medicine. He is the Lord, our healer. In fact, that's one of God's names, that he is uh, the tetragram YHWH Rapha. I am the Lord, your healer. Now, that's, that's an important phrase. And what I want you to do to help, help you see the full context of the word, we're gonna look at where that is revealed, where God himself tells us he is our healer. If you have your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 15 because God works a miracle of healing, but he does so using a treatment process and then reveals himself as our healer. You see, God himself used medicine to counteract a waterborne sickness at Marah. Let's look at it in Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, which means bitter, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses. Now I want you to notice, this is not an expression of faith. In fact, they're complaining. And, he, and Moses, though, cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, a piece of wood. And he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made a, um, for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do 
that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. God declares who he is, that he is the one that can take contaminated water, water that's not safe to drink, and make it sweet, make it drinkable. In this case, he did so using a treatment system. The wood absorbed the contaminants in the water, making it safe to drink. It filtered the water for all the people. God did the healing. He did the restoration. He is the Lord, our healer. But he also used a medical treatment means, one that he created and designed to have a healing effect. Do you realize that to this day, especially in Sudan, along the Nile River, they still use a tree to treat contaminated water, much in the same way as what we read about here in Exodus. Here's another one. We, we through this season of COVID, many of us have been in times of quarantine. Did you know that was God's idea? God commanded and created the use of quarantine to stop the spread of disease. Look at Leviticus chapter 13. If there is in the skin of one's body a boil and it heals, and in the place where the boil comes a white swelling or a reddish white spot, then it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall look, and if it appears deeper than the skin and its hair and has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease that has broken out in the boil. But if the priest examines it and there is no white hair in it and it is not deeper than the skin but is faded, then the priest shall shut him up seven days. And if it spreads in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread, it is a scar of the boil. And the priest shall pronounce him clean. See, God used his priest to be able to prevent the spread of communicable diseases like leprosy. And he used quarantine in order to give time to determine whether or not the condition that the person was under was something that would infect other people. Quarantine was his idea, and he instructed the very people of God, the servants of God, the priest, in how they were to examine the body to determine whether or not the disease was communicable. You see, God often uses medical treatment to facilitate divine healing. Look at the case of Isaiah and Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life, 
and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. Now look what happens. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs and apply it to the boil, and he recovered. God miraculously healed, but he used a medical treatment to do so. Do you see how it fits together? You see, we can't put God in a box. We can't take something out of context and say, this is how God has to work. God is the healer. Let me give you some examples from the New Testament for just a moment. Certainly of all people, the Apostle Paul could have healed many, many people. We discover that his handkerchief even was used in the healing of the sick. Acts chapter 19 says this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Clearly miraculous healing. But do you realize that God's word says that an illness was what Paul had that caused him to become close to the believers at Galatia. You see, Paul had plenty of faith, but he didn't always heal others, and he wasn't always healed himself. Galatians 4, verse 13. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus with you. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What he's saying here is that it was this illness that, it, that, excuse me, that impacted Paul's eyes that made him incredibly dear to the hearts of the people of Galatia, so much so that they wished they could have given their own eyes to Paul. Was it a lack of faith on Paul's part that he wasn't healed? No. See, sometimes God uses sickness for a greater purpose. He uses it to draw people together. I've seen this happen so many times when our, a person within the body of Christ, when their weakness or their illness is actually the instrument that draws people together. To then say that that person lacks faith is a complete misunderstanding of God's purpose and God's work in their life. And it brings a burden on that individual and a weight and a guilt and a shame that they should never have to bear because it was not God's purpose. You see, God is glorified sometimes through divine and miraculous healing and sometimes he is glorified most through endurance, through walking through the struggle of illness, of injury, of sickness, together as the body of Christ. The companions of Paul also suffered great illnesses. In Philippians chapter two, verses 25 through 30, we read about Epaphroditus, how he had nearly died. Paul says, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. You see, Paul didn't know for sure whether or not Epaphroditus would live or not but he deeply desired for him to. He wasn't in control, 
but he trusted in God. Also, we read this in 2 Timothy. There's a greeting that we see there. It says this, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. One of his companions who was traveling with him was ill, and he had to be left behind. Why didn't Paul heal Trophimus? Or if it was because of lack of faith, why didn't he correct him? We ask the same question uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. No longer only drink a water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul recognized that Timothy, who was his protege, he repeatedly suffered illnesses. And it wasn't because of a lack of faith. It was so because we live in a world that is broken, that is filled with sickness that is falling apart, that needs redemption, and it groans for the adoption, for the completion of God's plan that will manifest itself at the return of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't rebuke Timothy. He had every chance. If if it was a matter of lack of faith, he could have done so. Furthermore, I want you to think about one of the most faithful companions that Paul had. It is Luke. Luke is the one who was the human author of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And Luke accompanied Paul throughout much of his missionary journeys. Paul calls him the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. Luke would have cared for Paul after his many beatings, his stonings, his imprisonment, his shipwreck, and his ailments. There's no evidence to think that the scripture tells us that Paul was given um, 40 lashes three times. There's no evidence to indicate that he miraculously healed of those injuries. He had to be treated medically. He went through times of of great um, physical hardship where he was cold, where his body was suffering, where he was sick. And he had that condition that affected his eyes as well as the thorn in the flesh. The beloved physician was a provision from God. God gave Paul a companion who was skilled in the medical arts to be able to help care for Paul. This is what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cressicans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. You see, God provided a faithful companion who not only was a historian, not only a great friend, but was gifted medically to be able to help treat the ailments of Paul. You see, when we look at the totality of Scripture from beginning to end, we see that God doesn't have one set way that he deals with something. The focus is always on what will bring glory to the Lord most Will divine healing, will endurance, or even the death of a loved one? Because sometimes that can work in such a way that they enter into the presence of the Lord, they receive their reward, and in the result, people are actually drawn to faith in Christ. I've seen it happen so many times. So we need to be careful that when we approach God's word, that we allow it to speak and not to project our ideas, 
our thoughts, even if they're very well intended and, and the desire is to see the good of others. We just need to be careful and make sure that we're allowing God's word to speak and we're looking at it in context and throughout the full uh, spectrum of the scripture when we reach our understanding of what is true and what is false. I hope that practical application is helpful. And that applies to almost anything that we look at. We need to examine all of the things that we see in Scripture and determine whether they are true, whether they're consistent with the overall picture that we have in God's Word and how they fit together. Sometimes that can be confusing. And we need to be humble and ask questions because we need one another. I constantly need to do research and ask others for input and insight and understanding so that I make sure that what I believe lines up with God's word. And I make sure that what I believe and what I teach lines up with God's word. We need to examine it. We need to put it all to the truth test to see if it aligns with the person, with the commands, and the example of Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you again to get this little scripture um, exploration guide And I hope it will help you to grow in your understanding of how to examine God's word. Now today's been very practical, but I hope it's been a good resource for thinking about how we approach God's word. And if nothing else, that we come to the point of recognizing that the natural thing that you and I do is that we project our ideas, our beliefs, the things that we already think, our ideology onto others, onto our our own thoughts, onto the news, and certainly onto God's word. And we need to make sure that we're humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, help me not to do that, but instead help me to listen to your word, to see it as you've revealed yourself in a way that accurately reflects who Jesus Christ is. If you have questions about this, or maybe I said something that was confusing, maybe I said something you don't agree with, feel free to write to me. And, and we can begin to dialogue about that and hopefully we'll, we'll arrive together at where the Lord is, is pointing us, at what he's revealed in his word. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you. And we look forward to seeing you in person next week as we talk about walking in step with the Holy Spirit. God bless you. Have a great day.